Our passage today comes from Luke chapter 20, looking at verses 9 to 26. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 9. And he began to tell the parable, to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's pray. Gracious Father, as we come into your presence today and open your word, we ask for your help. We ask that you would grant us your grace, that we would be able to hear you as you speak to us from your word, that we might receive from your hand the true bread of heaven, that we would eat of it and never die. Lord, we praise you for the, the good news of the gospel, 
We pray that as it is proclaimed again today, that we would be united to it by faith and that it would benefit our souls. Lord, we pray that the way that we approach it, the way that we receive it, the spirit of our hearts would be such that you would receive glory in the church now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week we left off in Luke uh, chapter 20 and verse 8, where Jesus refused to reveal to uh, the religious authorities the source of his uh, authority. And if you were with us, you'll remember that that was because Of course, their interest and their purpose in coming to him, the reason that they they drew near to him and and asked him the questions that they did were never sincere. They didn't want to be instructed. They did not want to be discipled. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to test him, which is why Jesus says what he does to them at at the end of that verse uh, 8. I won't tell you. Uh, by what authority I do these things. These things referring to cleansing the temple, uh, teaching in its courts every day. Well, in, in the passage that follows, the passage that we're looking at today, Jesus goes on to do precisely what he wouldn't do with the religious leaders. He goes on to reveal the source of his authority, where he comes from, But he does this by way of a parable. He says that he is God's beloved son, that he is sent by the Father, and that when he comes and he does these things, when he cleanses the temple and he teaches every day, that he is actually the one calling them to give an account, not the other way around. That they're not in a position of authority standing over him, calling him to give an an account. It was not for him to answer the religious authorities, but for them to answer him. And so even though it may look at times as you watch this narrative that they have the upper hand, even though it may seem like things are out of control at points, and especially as we see them plot and scheme and eventually arrest and then put to death the Lord Jesus Christ, things are not at all out of hand. Nothing is out of control. God is very much in control. And the one who is rejected and so consistently despised will in the end be gloriously vindicated to the praise of the glory of God. This this is a particularly interesting parable because it deals not just with a particular theme or subject as many of Jesus' parables do, but in this particular parable, it deals with the entirety of Israel's history. And I want to invite you to join me by turning over to Isaiah chapter 5. The parable that we are looking at today is just littered with allusions to the Old Testament, images and themes that would have been familiar to Jewish listeners. Isaiah chapter 5 is a really important one. 
I want to let you hear what it says in Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1, and just pay careful attention to the connections and some of the similar language that we see in our passage today. Isaiah 5 and verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So brothers and sisters, here you have the background that Jesus is drawing from in the the parable of the tenants, and it helps us get our bearings when we look at what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 20. Uh, Jesus says there, a man planted a vineyard. Well, what is the vineyard? Israel is the vineyard. The prophecy of Isaiah there says, for the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts, is the house of Israel. And you see that throughout the whole Old Testament. Israel is depicted as a vineyard. You heard from Psalm chapter 80 uh, this morning, or this afternoon, talking about the Lord bringing this vine out of Egypt, clearing the ground uh, and planting it. Uh, You see God as the owner. The Lord himself is the owner of the vineyard. Isaiah talks about the Lord doing this work, digging it out, uh, clearing the the, the field of the stones, planting it with those choice vines. He builds a watchtower so it can be uh, protected. It would be safe from intruders and marauders that would would come in. It, It talks about the Lord's special love for this place that he has so invested himself into. Let me sing for my beloved, Isaiah says, my my love song concerning his vineyard. And you see his yearning to see that it would produce a harvest, that it would be bountiful and yield grapes. I looked for it to yield grapes. Same thing in Jesus' parable in Luke 20. The owner planted a vineyard, he led it out to tenants, went into another country for a long while when the time came, He sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. The owner uh, obviously owns this vineyard. Uh, He deserves a a part of of its harvest. He lets it out to these tenants or or keepers. In this case, it 
would have been the, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel, men who are supposed to be caretakers of God's vineyard. They were to be spiritual farmhands, husbandmen, stewards of what had been entrusted to them. That's how spiritual leaders are to conceive of themselves, conceive of the task that has been given to them as ones who are entrusted by the Lord to labor in fields not their own, fields that belong to, to Yahweh. It was for the priests and for the teachers of Israel to water and to cultivate and to feed and to, to nurture and to prune and to, 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 to see all of these vines mature so that with God's blessing, they might produce a harvest. Well, as you look at this parable, you can see that, that something goes seriously wrong. If you look at verse 10, at the proper time, the owner sends out a servant to the tenants to collect his share of the fruit. But what happens? The tenants beat him. They send him away empty-handed. And this just happens over and over again. And each time, the treatment of the servant gets successively worse. The second servant, they also beat and treated him shamefully. We don't know what that entails, but they treat him shamefully. And again, then they, they send him away empty-handed. The third, they wound and they cast him out. So each one is treated worse than the last. Now, who are these? Who are these servants? In Jeremiah chapter 7, and this is a passage again we looked at last week, the Lord says there, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So for generation upon generation, the Lord had been so good, so kind, so gracious, so patient as to send all his servants, the prophets, to speak to his people, to warn them, to plead with them, to amend their ways, to put away their foreign gods, to turn their hearts to them. You see the patience of the Lord. You see his love even as it's set against this, this backdrop of the wickedness of man, praise God that he is as gracious and as patient as he is. Second Peter 3 and verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is patient. At the same time, we, we mustn't mistake the Lord's uh, graciousness and patience as indifference or a kind of cavalier attitude toward the depravity and sinfulness of man. Peter says in the very next birth, uh, verse, verse after talking about the Lord's patience toward sinful man, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
Well, beloved, you have a foretaste of that here, just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, one that is meant, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to, to soften our hearts, to warn us of the wrath to come, even as we see Israel's works exposed here looking at their, their long history of rejecting the Lord and uh, doing harm and violence to uh, the Lord's servants, his prophets, that he so faithfully sent to warn and to admonish them. Paul says at the, at the very end of the book of Romans, everything that was written in former days was written for our instruction. Everything that was written. Here we have something written for our instruction as we look at Israel's history so long ago. You can look at their history and see this long, consistent testimony of hardening their hearts, of stiffening their necks against the servants of God. Well, God still has his servants today. The Lord still has his laborers in the field who herald the good news of his salvation, who call for a response of repentance and faith. And so the question comes to us. How have we responded? What legacy have we left behind us? As we look retrospectively, not at Israel, but our own lives, not those around us, but us, myself, how have I responded to those messengers the Lord has been so kind to send to my life? Now, returning to our text, we see just the, the, the marvelous, incredible, matchless love of God in, in verse 13 where it says, the, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. I'll send my beloved son. What does that remind you of? Maybe you think of Christ's baptism. This is my beloved son. Or the transfiguration. Again, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You might go way further back even to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 15 where the Lord God calls Abraham to take his son, his only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Of course, the Lord provides a substitute for Isaac there and the ram caught in the thicket. Well, here again, we're in the land of Moriah, only this time it is the Lord himself who has not withheld his son, his only son, whom he loves, who himself will go on to be the substitute for sin. So with these three servants sent away, empty-handed, the owner sends forth his son with, with the hope that perhaps there's just an ounce of uprightness in the tenants. Perhaps the son's status as heir, as son, uh, will garner some respect, some of the respect that he deserves. Uh, 
Of course, what does it say? But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And that's exactly what they did. They threw him out of the vineyard so that the vineyard wouldn't be defiled and they killed him outside of the field. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. In the same way that the bodies of those animals whose blood are brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, their bodies would be taken outside of the camp. The writer of the Hebrews says, so also Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ, God's beloved son, was cast outside the gate so that we could be welcomed in, so that we could be brought in, so that that veil would be rent and we could come before the presence of God. Jesus bore the reproach that our sins deserved. The Son of God was put to death for sins not his own, but for ours. Which brings us to the, the, the climax of this story. The climax of this story is not the death of the Son. Praise God. The climax of this story is not the owner of the vineyard's purposes thwarted. It is not God's plans frustrated. Keep reading with me, if you will, in verse 15b. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Two points of application that Jesus draws. First, he says, God will destroy those who reject his beloved son, especially those entrusted with laboring in his fields. This is the main teaching of the text. This is the heart of the parable's message that judgment falls on everyone who rejects God's beloved son. Israel had this long history of despising God's word, of despising his servants, the prophets that had been sent to them. Many, many do the same today. In many ways, this is a passage that is directed primarily at those who don't know God. It, it, it is evangelistic in nature. It is aimed at those who... You could, you could even say who know the message of the gospel, but don't know personally the one it proclaims. It's aimed at those who have rejected Christ. And if there would be any here today who are, who are in that category, perhaps you are even tempted to think at this hour, I'd rather be anywhere else but right here. This is the last thing that I want to hear. But dear ones... The worst thing that could happen to you would be for God to stop sending his servants to you. That is why, if you look at the book of Amos, the worst judgment that falls on God's people isn't a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the word 
of the Lord. The worst thing that can happen to you is for God to lift his hand so that there is no warning. There is no appeal to the conscience. There is no call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no summons to fall on his mercy and grace. But there will come a time when that day will come. There will come a point in time where there is no remedy, the prophets say, when it will be too late. This is a text that, that disabuses us of that notion that I can get serious about, ser- about spiritual things later. I can get, I can get serious ab- about making my relationship with Christ right at some later time. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by that line of thinking. Jesus says here, secondly, I will give the vineyard to others. The stewardship of God's vineyard will be taken away. Speaking about the Jews, it will be taken away and given to a people producing its fruits. And this is precisely what Paul and Barnabas were getting at when they told the Jews, since you thrust aside the word of God, Since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. We're turning to the Gentiles. The the vineyard will be given to others. And when Jesus says this, not even his own disciples, who would have been comprised in large part by, by Jewish believers, not even they can believe it. They say, surely not. They're totally taken aback by what Jesus says here. Well, Christ answers them by citing Psalm 118. And you you see here how it says that he looks directly at them. This is, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, Psalm 118 is a special psalm. I say that because it's one that that pictures the salvation that the Lord brings, uh, the gates of, of righteousness through which sinners can enter into right relationship with the Lord. They can give right worship to God. It's an enthronement psalm. It's one that anticipates the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and yet... It pictures this promised one who is to come, coming in humility, coming rejected, coming despised. But as Jesus suggests in his response, as he preaches about the destruction and transfer of ownership that will come in the wake of his death, Christ's rejection does not mean defeat. Everything is not as it seems. When the beloved son is killed, that is not the final word. In fact, his sufferings and death are the very thing that set the stage for his exaltation. So God, again, is very much in control. He is the one sovereignly directing the course of events, using even the most wicked of men to bring about his good and gracious promises. 
He is superintending everything from the beginning of time. Jesus says, everyone who falls on that stone, that rock, which is Christ, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, however the one who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, that stumbling stone, however the the rejecter meets him, the end isn't good. It spells destruction. The application then being, do not reject him. Do not reject him. The consequences of doing so are disastrous. Eternally so. Now if you look at verse 19, it says that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. Have you ever listened to a sermon and you had that distinct sense that it was tailor-made for you. That the Lord God in his infinite wisdom was speaking directly to you. These men knew this parable had been told against them. And yet what an instructive text this was. What, What was governing their hearts even as they perceived that, even as they came to understand that Jesus was speaking to them, what was governing the way that they responded to that sermon? It was not the fear of the Lord. It was not sincerity of heart. It was not a desire to walk in faith and in obedience to the word of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a response that welled up out of love for God. It was a spirit of self-interest. There was a spirit of self-preservation there that was governing their, their response. You have to imagine there was a, a concern over what would I look like around my peers if I responded in the way that Christ is calling me to respond. Perhaps there are those here today who are wrestling with those various things, the same dynamics. And one of the scribes and chief priests' most devious, crafty ploys yet, they send spies out to watch Jesus. Men who pretend to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Maybe there's some way that we can get the Roman authorities involved here. We have been tracing Jesus' ministry all the way up to Jerusalem, and we know that the Jews, the religious leaders, have been unsuccessful so far in their attempts to get Jesus to stumble. Maybe we can get him to trip up on something that will get the civil authorities involved. They're thinking to themselves now. And so they send these spies to him and they say, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Truer words have never been spoken. Notice that every single thing they say there is exactly right. But they say it not to honor him, but to catch him. They're flattering him. 
And then comes the question, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Let's, let's talk about politics and religion. And you see here that this is not an open-ended question. It is not a question that comes posed in such a way that says, here is the nature of our question. You instruct us. You disciple us. We want to learn from you, Lord Jesus, and submit ourselves to your wisdom. That's how we should approach the word, brothers and sisters. We bring our our questions the things we're puzzled by, our doubts, our unbelief, we, whatever it is, and we come to God's word and not saying it has to be this way or that way, but God, teach me, instruct me. They don't do that. They come with two potential answers. So it's a gotcha kind of question. It's a test. It's one that says, here's what you can pick between, and, and both answers have their problems. Jesus is put here in what looks like an impossible situation, a catch-22. The question may look innocent enough on the surface, but behind it lies this much bigger question of must the people of God submit themselves to a, a foreign secular power? The question of taxes really isn't the, the central issue that is at hand here. But what it says in verse 22, paying tribute to Caesar, that's the sticking point. Essentially, ironically, they are getting at this issue of allegiance, fidelity, worship, honor. Of course, they're coming at things from the the entirely wrong end. But you see the position Jesus is put in. If Jesus says, yes, give tribute to Caesar, he's going to undermine the the social equity that he has with the people. He's going to lose much of the respect that he has built up with diehard Jews, especially nationalistic ones. If, on the other hand, he says no, he's going to look like a political dissident, exactly what the religious leaders would love to see. He's going to look like a rebel, And then they can just let Rome have their way with him. So you could put it this way. Is Jesus king? If he is, he won't allow people to go on paying tribute to Caesar. On the other hand, if he doesn't mind the tribute, he mustn't be who he claims to be. That's how they're trying to catch him. And once again, in classic fashion, we see the wisdom of God in the Son of God so clearly on display in his response. Look at verse 23, if you will. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. Probably this is a Tiberian denarius. It had an inscription on it reading, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Augustus. On the flip side of it was a picture of Tiberius' mother Livia, 
depicted as an incarnation of the goddess of peace with yet another inscription that read, High Priest. So you can see how this would, pre- would have presented a real difficulty here and just brought serious tension to the whole discussion. Well, Jesus does something remarkable here. Jesus is the one setting the trap now. Because when he says this, when he says, show me a denarius, and they pull out of their pocket a Roman coin, he has now put them in a position where they've already acknowledged they have submitted themselves to Roman rule. They have already submitted themselves to the authority of the Romans. So in effect, the issue has already been settled. They've already answered the question. They've entered into terms with Rome. They already have dealings with the Roman state. If you're so concerned with bowing down before these secular overlords, what are you doing with their coins in in your pocket? By their own admission, silent as it was, they had already admitted that Caesar had a certain kind of authority that had to be acknowledged. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Pay your taxes. And we should be careful to remember that Rome was not this paragon of virtue when Jesus uttered those words, as far as empires and governments go. Now what does that mean for us? Even if you think the government is corrupt or they don't handle money wisely or they spend money on things you wouldn't spend money on, Jesus still says, pay your taxes. That's where your end of the responsibility lies. You're responsible, ethically speaking, for for that, not for what they do with the money. Now, you can lobby You can petition, you can vote, you can exercise all of the privileges that are afforded to you in a a society like ours, but render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Paul expands on this in Romans 13. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Skipping down a few verses. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes." For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Peter says, be subject to every human institution. I hope some of you caught that. That's not what he says. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 
Fear God, honor the emperor. It is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. How many of us need to have that impressed upon our hearts? Pray for governing authorities, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But of course, there's more here. That's not the end of the matter. And to God, the things that are God's. And, and in, in many ways, that's where the emphasis lies here and the duty that Jesus' interlocutors had little concern to consider. We have obligations to the Lord as well, ones that these leaders had failed to attend to. They, they did not consider the purpose of this passage is not to provide a treatise on tax law. It is not to provide uh, a, a full-scale treatise on the Christian's relationship to the state. It, it may provide some instruction on those kinds of points as an aside, but Jesus' primary purpose here is not to expound on, on what the believer is to do when the authority of the, of the state and the authority of God come into conflict, There are other passages in the scriptures that you can go to that deal with those kinds of things. The thing to see here is that that Christ's answer recognizes the legitimate sphere of authority the civil magistrate has, while at the same time acknowledging God's authority and rule over our lives. It's not an either-or answer. And the irony of this whole passage is that while the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus over an issue of taxes, they had failed to render to God the things that are God's, the religious leaders. Now, what are the things that are God's? Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. As it pertains to men, all that we have is his. What do we have that we did not receive? He deserves our worship, our service, our praise, our thanksgiving, our very lives, lives of holiness and faith and obedience unto him. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 26 says, And they were not able to answer in the presence of the people, or they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. What a tragic and harrowing verse we are left on here. You can marvel and not magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. You can be wonderstruck by him and not worship him. You can be astonished by him and not ascribe to him the glory that he is due. God has sent his beloved son. Will you stumble over him? 
and thus be destroyed? Or will you say the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you knowing that we cannot change ourselves on our own. And so we come to you asking for the Spirit's work within. Lord, that we would have hearts that are soft to the message of your word. Hearts and minds that are receptive and yielding and submissive to the word of truth that you have spoken. Help us, Lord. Help us, God. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to see ourselves as we really are. God, to respond. To respond today to the hope of your grace. Lord, we are so grateful for your beloved son that he was sent for us to redeem us, to ransom us, to pay the price for our sins. That while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, he died for those who had already turned aside in word and in thought and in deed. Because of the great love with which you loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you made us alive with him. For this we praise you, God. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you for the good news that through faith in his name, we we may receive mercy this day and not judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.